This is Aliens and Artist, part two of our conversation with Ken Wilbur. Minus listeners, this one is in reverse backwards, aka forwards. I'm Stuart Davis. In this episode, how artists grease the valve on non-ordinary states with a homeopathic dose of crazy. Also, physicists on consciousness. Stop it. Stop. Stop. Stopity stop it. Plus, all the fun people are in hell, parties in heaven are as empty as a church in Europe, then the god particle, it's cool, it just happens to omit half the universe, then itertheni, then Deepak Chopra, Fritjof Capra, Fritjof Capra, Deepak Chopra, and why systems theory is not spirituality. Also, us and them, Pink Floyd was on to something. Last unleastlessness to hear part one with Ken, become a patron or a pluser. It's also the easiest way to get licensed as a realtor. Find out more at the end of the show. But first, Ken, you've spoken about how mental health issues can exist side by side along with genuine psi capacities. That in real life, authentic psi abilities can overlay with suboptimal psychological, emotional, or spiritual health. And I wonder if you could relate for us how these distinct items, genuine psi versus psychopathology, do or do not share territory. Yeah. Well, one of the simplest explanations is that you get this ego self and it's got its boundary and it's separate from its bodily impulses and desires so it can control them and it also is starting to come together with its social interactions and so it's learning ways that its own self-boundary fits with other people's boundaries Whereas the previous stage, the ego was worried with its bodily impulses. So it was the ego versus sex, the ego versus power, the ego versus aggression. And if that broke down, then you get some sort of messy neurosis going on. But that was what the ego is working at, at those early pre-rational, pre-conventional stages. Then when it moves up into the middle realms, what I would call amber, and it starts to realize that it's the real battle now is not between its own ego mind versus its bodily instincts. Its battle now is between its ego mind and other people's ego minds. So these, this, this is often called, these stages are often called things like conformist stage or the conventional stage. And what it means is one of the easiest ways that a person can get along with a group that they're in is by simply following the rules. So they become conformist in that sense. Um, if they have trouble with that, their ego boundary can also tend to break down a bit. And the whole point 
wherever that phenomena occurs is that when the ego boundary breaks a bit then that opens it to other areas of the psyche and including ones we could call the unconscious and so although they rarely get a full-blown psychosis although it can happen whenever the ego boundary breaks and lets other parts of the brain in you can get a type of hallucinatory phenomena like the dream state will start seeping in and they'll have almost hallucinatory dreams during the day and so that can be a problem but what happens with that type of psychopathology is that the same or similar type of thing let me say a similar type of thing occurs with various types of peak experiences because in the peak experience you're also breaking down your ego identity your hold on i'm just this person that has this name and works at this job and all of those gross identifications but you're just open and whether you're open to you want to consider it open to other parts of the brain like i say the dream state that themselves are open to farther out realities or whether you just want to see when your ego opens its own boundary then it itself is directly invaded by extra bodily phenomena or if you want to say okay it opens itself up to Carl Jung's unconscious or something like that these phenomena all have that in common which is that the ego boundary breaks down and it allows other accesses of information into it that it normally just wouldn't so whether that's allowing a dream state phenomena to, to flush in or a collective unconscious phenomena to flush in or just higher subtle energies that are out there floating around and all of a sudden they can flush in in any of those cases you do get psychopathology and peak experiences sharing a common territory and i think that's a fairly common phenomenon whether it happens to lesser degrees and so people aren't just flipped out completely and go nuts or whether it does happen in a larger way and so either the peak experience is felt as bigger or touching into something more real or whether it's just the dream state invading and you get just some sort of silly dream states uh, occurring which can nonetheless help creativity for example 
or whether you get some unconscious, collective unconscious material foaming in with its archetypes and all of that. But what we've found a lot about the ego and its structure over the last several years is that it is a very plastic situation and it can expand twist separate break and anytime that happens you're flooded with information states energy states awareness states that you just normally would not have and so that can be a problem usually they're fairly brief and so the person has it and goes whoa i'm going nuts and then it gets a little bit better and they just lie down and they think about it god what was that on the other hand it could be particularly if it's a peak type experience it could be a, a feeling of spiritual infusion and so the person will experience that peak experience as being divine or a type of unity consciousness type of one taste even and those kinds of experiences by the way are fairly common a recent poll for example showed that 60 percent of americans have an experience of being one with the universe one with everything and so it generally lasts for a few minutes to an hour or two and then it goes away and they'll often not have another one but for the ones that have a powerful experience like that it can change their lives forever and in terms of when we talk about death it opens them to the other side of death almost and many of them will report that they're not afraid of dying anymore just like the near-death experience people do so that's sort of fairly common experience and it can run the range since the common territory is being shared by peak experiences and by psychopathology it can run the, the range from being relatively benign experiences to relatively disturbing and seriously psychopathic occasion you mentioned creativity can we look at the way in which an artist becomes adept at controlling the valve on that boundary of self and other how do they form a symbiosis with peak experiences and flow states can you speak to how artists become proficient at mining non-ordinary states for inspiration and what perils and wonders lie in wait in doing so sure and this of course is depending upon what you consider the source of inspiration to be so for example 
if the source of inspiration is just this gigantic consciousness that we're all immersed in and that's the actual source of creativity then what you want are to find ways to get that conscious creativity into your mind or into your brain and obviously the better you are at doing that the better a creative artist you would be and so for whatever reason some artists just seem able to control that switch that can allow conscious creative energies into their brain and they might not know exactly how they're doing it they might be able to do it quite frequently they might be able to do it on demand and some of them apparently can do it for hours at a time whereas others do it you know and it's a half hour or something like that but you always hear artists that can just about on the drop of a dime produce a work of art apparently picasso used to do this a lot and you'd say he'd he would be at a restaurant and for a tip he would just reach out on the napkin and draw an original picasso for take about five minutes and then sign his name to it and give it to the waitress or something like that but you also that switch that you let in stuff the creative consciousness can also once you open it it can be open to other energies and other problems as well so even if you're an artist that has a fair amount of control over that valve that allows conscious creativity into the brain you can also end up allowing aspects of awareness or the brain or the mind that are rather shadowy rather pathological in nature and you can't always select which one you're going to want and so i think that's why there's at least a sort of sort of common understanding that all artists are a little bit crazy and if if often if you become an artist and you assume that you're an artist you sort of make room for uh, i'm a crazy artist and you might be thinking you're opening the valve to get in a nice hit of creativity and you might get a slug of psychopathological impulses or drives or imagery 
And it could be coming from dream states or the collective unconscious or anywhere. And when it gets in, you're going to be acting a little wacky. But I think these two are at least related in that general way. And that's the reason that artists, whether they're Van Gogh or Modrian, doesn't matter, that they often have bouts with fairly severe, what we would call some sort of mental illness. And I think that's real. I think that can happen. And particularly, the more open an artist is to those higher consciousness, creativity impulses, the more often they can be open to some of the crazier aspects that are wandering around out there in the cosmos or in here in our deepest unconscious and so on. And particularly if you look back at the stages of development that humans have gone through, if we just use Gepser's archaic to magic to mythic to rational, then our unconscious contains aspects of all of those archaic stuff, magic stuff, mythic stuff, early rational stuff. And once you're open to input from any of those areas, you can start getting magical images, mythical images, rational images. And it can really be difficult for an artist to deal with. So that's just a sort of a broad stroke of some of those issues. Well, that's why I just decided very early on to simply not have a shadow. <laughs> Problem solved. So in part one, you related how Ramana Maharshi had said, if it's not present in deep dreamless sleep, it's not real. But generally, our values on what is real are almost the exact opposite of that. We assign the most legitimacy, the highest reality status to waking awareness. The further afield we move from waking awareness, the less reality status a state is granted. Dreams are the effluvia of the subconscious in this cosmology. The deep dreamless state holds no value, much less some premium position in our pyramid of reality values. So what are the dangers in a cosmology that equates the material with the real? and the immaterial with fantasy. How did we end up with such insanity? Yeah, I think it's really disastrous. And just from my own exploration of those states, first of all, I think that the modern West has dropped the importance of subtle, causal, turia, turiatida, is that, well, we'll talk about this a little bit more too when we talk about why we keep listening to physicists to tell us about consciousness. 
which is one of the most <laughs> idiotic things I've seen. But what happens is that as the modern West gave more and more emphasis to the waking state, when a certain form of rationality came up with the Western Enlightenment, it was almost always contrasted with mythic religion. And most forms of religion in the world today have a mythic basis. So, and mythic means Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy. Most of the Middle Ages was devoted to a mythic, literal Christianity. And so it had things like the Nicene Creed, the Apollo's Creed, and these were all straight out mythic, literal creeds. So they would all start out, I believe in Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I believe the Son was born from a Virgin Mary. I believe he's the one and only biological son of the only creator of the entire universe. I believe he was dead and resurrected three days. And on the third day, he arose physically to heaven and is now living on the right hand of God in heaven for eternity. And if you simply accept the fact that he died for your sins, then when you die, you can go straight to heaven and live next to him and God. And wow, it'll be fun. Where actually, I think it'll be the most boring place imaginable. With, I mean, <laughs> all of the fun people are down in hell. So anyway, but that was the form of religion. Religion had been that way since the beginning of the great mythic era, which started several thousand years BCE and extended on in to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment when the Enlightenment came up with its emphasis on reason, it looked at the mythic religions and said, you guys are nuts. We're throwing you out. God is dead. See you around. And what they didn't do was distinguish between spiritual experience, which is a direct first-person experience of waking up or enlightenment, or having a higher peak or plateau experience, a direct first-person experience versus spiritual intelligence, which is simply spiritual experience is a direct experience of spiritual reality, and spiritual intelligence is just thinking about spiritual realities or trying to imagine what they mean or deciding what is of ultimate concern what's the most important of the most important of the most important thing that we can say about jesus christ and then everything that they entered was some myth that was taken literally so what that ended up doing is 
science throughout religion in its entirety. And that included the small number of religious mystics who were actually practicing some sort of waking up practice. They were doing some form of witnessing or mirror mind awareness or the cloud of unknowing or something like that. But they were very few in number and the rest of the population, it was mythic religion. So once that happened and science continued to take hold until by the end of the Enlightenment, we had scientific materialism was the one and only real way to get true knowledge in this world. All religion was out. And that meant that all of the stages, the only way most human beings find out anything about subtle, causal, turiya, turiyatida, is they have to meditate or contemplate to get into those realms. If they do that, they notice how incredibly real they are and the incredibly important and real realities that they show us. And so this ended up completely devaluing the subtle causal Turiya, Turiyatita states of awareness that constituted waking up. And so the West continued with growing up or moving through the structures of consciousness towards higher levels, which is why they went from magic to mythic. Then in the Western Enlightenment, they hit rational. Then in the 60s, they hit pluralistic or postmodernism. And that's where we are now with the huge culture wars between green postmodernism, orange modernism, and amber traditionalism. Those are the three values that are at war in the culture wars. Well, none of them, of course, emphasize any of the meditative states that you can actually realize their value when you yourself practice and get into those states. So those just increasingly dropped out of even existence so that today most people don't even realize that there is an enlightenment, a waking up, a great liberation, uh, metamorphosis. It's just not obvious. It's not part of the culture. And it's certainly not something that is made available to kids starting in grade school, which in a certain sense, it, it certainly should be, but it isn't. So one of the things that I'm looking forward to is when we, first of all, understand the difference between a real waking up experience versus simply talking about it.
because at any stage of growing up, archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral, one can have a different state of waking up. They're relatively independent. You can be very highly advanced in waking up, had several satori's in your life and so on, and yet not be that growing up. And likewise, you can have a high stage of growing up, you can be at an integral stage of growing up, and yet never had a satori in your life. So these are relatively independent. And spiritual intelligence is a multiple intelligence of which human beings have about, looks like somewhere between nine and 12. And you can have your spiritual intelligence working at any level. So if it, it's working at the level of magic, then you'll create a religion like voodoo, where voodoo, if I make a doll that looks like you and I stick a pin in it, you are actually hurt. That's magic. If I alter the symbol representing the thing, the real thing will change. And that's magic. And spiritual intelligence started with magic. And most of our early religions were magic then starting around 4000 bc we had the switch from magic to mythic and spiritual religions started operating from the mythic level and one of the main stages of the mythic level james fowler calls mythic literal because the myths were taken as literally true so Moses really did part the Red Sea. Moses really did climb up on Mount Zion and see the burning bush. And Elijah really did go straight to heaven in his chariot while he was still alive. And Christ really did heal the sick, walk on water, turn water into wine fly through the air, teleport, you could read minds. I mean, all of these magical qualities were ascribed to him literally. That is a real problem because most religions still come from that mythic literal error. When they started moving into rational, then you started to get writers in recent years, like Bishop Shelby Spong, who writes from the rational level, his spiritual intelligence is plugged into the rational level. He doesn't believe any of the myths in Christianity. He's actually written a dozen books on this. His most recent book is called Unbelievable. And it's called Unbelievable because he says, every one of the magic and miracle and supernatural things in the bible are unbelievable to any educated person we just don't believe them and until we stop promoting that we're all we're going to see is a continued drop in the attendance of christianity in europe it's dropped from 50 percent to less than 11 percent in virtually every country 
in Europe. They just don't buy it. So one of the things we have to do is get spiritual intelligence coming from the higher stages of growth, coming from rational, pluralistic, and the integral stages, of course. And then you can tell a perfectly believable, intelligent, credible story. Think of Buddha. He's the only religion that started from rational, orange, world-centric. And so he doesn't have any gods or goddesses. He doesn't have any nature spirits running around. He explains in a perfectly rational way that in the universe as we generally know it is dukkha, it's suffering. There's a way out of dukkha or suffering, and that is to get out of this manifest world of samsara entirely. And when we do that, we get into a state called nirvana. And then he explains, now, this is all rational, what I'm telling you, but you can't realize enlightenment just by thinking. You have to actually take up meditation or contemplation to stop your thinking and get into these higher states. When you do that, then you'll have this realization. You'll be a God-man. And that is perfect. So once we see that kind of switch occur, then we'll see more spiritual intelligence coming from post-mythic or trans-mythic stages, rational, pluralistic, integral, turquoise. And that will change profoundly the way we approach religion. And among other things, it would mean that we would start increasing the number of people that took up a true waking up practice. And they would meditate and themselves start to move through gross, subtle, causal, turia, and turiatita. And I think at that time, then the importance of all of these major states of consciousness will become obvious. But that's, we'll wait and see how that goes. We're probably still a few weeks away from that happening, though. Yeah, could be. <laughs> so let's switch gears to why we keep asking physicists about consciousness. Why do we routinely find Neil deGrasse Tyson or Stephen Hawking, etc., fielding questions that are tied into the hard problem of consciousness? Physicists study objective phenomena, but they habitually overstep into subjective and intersubjective realms. What's your take on this domain trespassing? Your books, Quantum Questions, The Marriage of Sense and Soul, plunged into the heart of our confusion around science and spirituality, interiors and exteriors in human experience, for instance? The easiest way is to start with the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was many, many extraordinarily important things. 
I want to get that straight. The common way that the enlightenment is explained, and by the way, it's explained by all of these physicists that give their theories on consciousness. It's explained this way. And the explanation is wrong about what the enlightenment was, and therefore what it did wrong. It's typical to say of the enlightenment that it was a fractured, atomistic, mechanistic, physicalistic worldview. And that that reduction of all higher realms of matter, body, mind, soul, spirit, all of those got catastrophically reduced because of the idiocy of the Enlightenment. But that's not what the Enlightenment was actually about. It's almost the opposite. Um, as Charles Taylor points out in his book, Sources of the Self, the main idea of the modern Enlightenment was the great system of nature. The French philosophers call it the system de la nature. It was the idea that all of the universe, all of nature is interwoven in a great unified whole. And this whole was what was important. John Locke even called it the great interlocking order. And the idea was that the system of nature was so constructed that, as Pascal himself put it, it's so unified that no part can be understood without understanding the whole, and no whole can be understood without understanding the parts. And the encyclopedia, which was the Bible of the Enlightenment, said everything in nature is connected to everything else. Therefore, the job of the philosopher is to create links, to show the links between all of this interwoven nature. That's what the Enlightenment was about. Now, a couple things end up going wrong with that. And that's what caused the problems that these physicists all point to. But it was off to a great start. I mean, an inner, great interwoven unified system that was whole. And what it was made of was actually the great chain of being. So this great system of nature was composed of matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And they were all woven together into interlinking aspects. That's why the very phrase, no missing links, you've heard of that when it comes to Darwin. That was a theory that was accepted two decades before Darwin even started supplying scientific evidence for the looking for the missing links. So you have this extraordinary great nest or great chain of nature with they're all interwoven with each other. And this is all interwoven in the great system, the great whole of 
nature. Now, right at the beginning of that, we had the invention of modern science. And this was a specific invention that, as Whitehead pointed out, it came into existence in the year 1605, and it was simultaneously and independently thought of by Kepler and Galileo. And the point that they made about science is that, quote, the laws of nature are to best be understood by measurement. There had been many scientists before. I mean, we recognized Aristotle as a great scientist, but all he did was observe and classify and so on. He never measured. Measurement was the radically new concept that invented modern science. That's where it came from. And of course, if you think of any science now, all it is is a series of machines that measure, whether it's measuring DNA or measuring the speed of light or measuring gravity, it's all measurement. That's why science exploded from 1605 forward. I mean, Kepler measured planetary motion and invented the laws of planetary motion. Galileo measured earthly motion and invented the laws of earthly motion. The super genius Galileo put both of them together to create his universal law of gravity. And Newton is often pictured as coming up with this idea because he's sitting under a tree and an apple falls on his head and he gets this big epiphany. What that's meant to indicate is that Newton realized when the apple fell on his head that the same force that was driving the apple to fall on his head was the same force that caused the earth to go around the sun, namely gravity. So he, Newton unified earth and heaven with his laws. And again, the great system de la nature was the force of all of that. Now, the problem comes from measurement is made to order for material things. It's very hard to measure the mind. Now, we have recently, and just recently, the last 50, 60 years, we've sort of come up with qualitative measurements for the mind. But when science was coming into existence, it had none of those. It was just measuring like crazy. It was measuring geology, astronomy, biology, ecology, all of those. And the thing about measurement is it's all of matter. So right around the same time, we had what was is generally universally acknowledged as the first modern philosopher, Rene Descartes. And Descartes maintained that there were two particularly important substances in this world. One was matter and one was mind. And matter had extension 
and mind had intention. Well, again, extension is something you can measure. But intention, oh, that's kind of hard to do. So as the scientists continued measurement, they were measuring just the right hand material aspects of the world. And they weren't measuring interiors. Mind was losing out. Now, originally, they didn't think they were losing anything because they still believed in the great system of nature and they still believed in the great chain of being. And so even though they were measuring things that were only matter, they didn't think that they were leaving anything important out. But unfortunately, what happened about by about two centuries later is notice even when we talk about Kepler's laws, Galileo's laws, and Newton's laws, the laws of planetary motion were all material matter, material measurement. The laws of earthly motion were all material matter measurement. The law of gravity was all material matter measurement. There was no minds, no interiors in any of those equations. And as those were the typical prototype paradigm of action on the physical domain, science ended up focusing entirely on the right hand material substances and the left hand which contained values the good the beautiful interiors purpose goal those were all getting left out even though in the back of their mind they still had the great system de la nature so they didn't think they were leaving out anything important but they were leaving out the left hand quadrants and the right-hand quadrants alone were real. And what they ended up doing, what's been called the crime of the Enlightenment, is that they reduced all of reality to the lower right quadrant. And it was the lower right, the system, the, the quadrant of systems of material things because they still believed in the great system de la nature so they were still looking at holes at complete systemic holes so as they started studying the human body they would look at the whole of it they cut the skull open and see oh there is a brain but when they're doing that they can't see any of the left hand realities because you can look at the brain but you won't see the mind the mind is what the brain looks like from the inside and if you look at it you'll see values and goals and purposes and visions and dreams you won't see anything like that in the brain all you'll see in the brain is a hunk of material. The brain looks more or less like a crumpled grapefruit. So if you take that crumpled grapefruit out and set it on the table, that's mind. That's what mind looks like. And that's all it is. 
But where is your brain in all of that? None of the left-hand quadrants can be pointed to. Love, mercy, compassion, care, joy, none of those. You can put your finger on none of those. You can videotape none of those. But everything in the right-hand quadrant being a material, you can videotape everything in the right-hand quadrant. So today we finally finished videotaping all of the quarks. We finally found the big boson, in a sense, photographed it, videotaped it, and a particle accelerator. And it's the last major quark that's been found. So they sometimes call it the God particle. Needless to say, it's not the God particle because it leaves out half the universe, the left hand, which can't be seen or videotaped, but it can be felt and we can have a mutual understanding about it. Like you and I right now are trying to entertain some sort of mutual understanding, but put your finger on mutual understanding. You can't do it. You can't touch it. It's nothing on the interiors can be videotaped or photographed or measured. And so we have the exteriors possessing extension and therefore being measured. And we have the interiors possessing intention and therefore not being measured. And by 1800s and 1850s, the official philosophy of the modern Western world was scientific materialism. That's all that was felt to give reality. In the previous stage, the mythic stage, if you wanted to know what was real, you would go and talk to a minister or a pastor, and they would tell you what reality is. But by the middle of the 1800s, God is dead. And if you want to know what's real, you don't go to a pastor, a rabbi, a minister, or a priest. You go to a scientist, and the scientist will tell you what's real. So scientific materialism is still our major background, official, formal Western philosophy. And so what that means is everything in the lower right quadrant is real. Anything in the other quadrants is not. And so the good, the true, the beautiful, they're gone. Subjectivity, that's gone. Interior values, that's gone. None of those were taken to be as real as the rocks and the amoeba and the life forms that we could actually videotape. They all had extension. There were still cells. Those are in the lower right quadrant. You look down a microscope at a cell. You can see the cell. You can see its various material components. But that's it. All you can see are the material components. So as this started going forward, people that 
began examining the human brain and trying to connect it with the human mind would often run into an enormous amount of problems because mind and brain are not the same. And mind cannot be reduced to brain, brain cannot be reduced to mind. If nothing else, mind is seen through a first-person perspective. That's the perspective you look through if you want to see your mind right now. You look through a first-person perspective. If you want to see your brain, you can't see that through a first-person perspective. You see that through a third-person perspective. So you can cut open your skull and look in and you'll see your brain. Sure enough, it's a holistic, right-hand, material entity. So you have first-person, left-hand realities and third-person, right-hand realities. So scientific materialism still being the core of this, we wanted to, well, certainly scientists, many of the scientists themselves, E.O. Wilson, for example, with this notion of consilience, wanted to reduce all sciences to the lowest science, which is physics. And that became a cottage industry, was trying to come up with the theory of everything that would explain how all of the forces of physical science drew together, and they actually gave rise to all of the forces in biology. And when those came together, they would create all the forces in psychology. And when those came together, they'd form all the forces in sociology, and so on. The problem is, that's reductionism of the worst possible reality. And to see what happened when these physicists started writing about ultimate realities, take the Tao of physics. He maintained that, now remember, he's still caught in the lower right quadrant. So he's still just looking at all the material objects that make up the material plane of reality. And he thinks, because those are come in holistic systems of nature, that, that he's still including everything. He th still thinks he's got a holistic system even though he's only working with the lower right systems of exterior material things. So in that entire book, he doesn't once mention values, purpose, goals, desires, beauty, goodness, subjective realities, or any internal reality at all, because those are all just missing from scientific materialism. They're not needed anymore. So Capra will say, oh, see this unity of all these material particles? See how they come together? 
Well, this is the same unity that a Zen student experiences when he has a Satori or an ultimate unity consciousness. They're the same. So the Tao of physics means the Tao mystical experience and physics are both doing the same thing. They're dealing with the same reality. And all he's dealing with is lower right quadrant. It still is holistic. The, all of its particles are still tied together into webs of interwoven realities. And so he just immediately does two things. He's collapsing all of reality into just the material dimension. So there's no room for body, mind, soul, or spirit in his system. But because there's a unified system de la nature in all of these material realities, this is the same unity that a Zen student experiences it. This is the same oneness with everything that uh, a mystic experiences. Only now it's based on real science. And this is just hilarious. It's the worst form of reductionism you can think of. And not only that, there, it runs into interminable problems. Like if all quantum mechanics really shows this unity of nature, and to see that would be to have a Satori, then that would mean every professional physicist trained in the world, in order to get his degree, he would have to have a Satori. Or else he's not understanding the totality of the great system of nature that's just material interwoven. And in fact, almost no professional physicists have Satori. So how similar can they actually be? The answer is not very much at all. But because we have scientific materialism, because almost every scientific materialist now takes consciousness and reduces it to brain, and then it'll take brain and reduce it to its lowest common denominators, like quarks being held together by quantum theory, and quantum entanglement is the oneness of the entire world, then they claim that's what consciousness is. And all they've done is moved from the upper left quadrant to the lower left quadrant to the upper right quadrant to the lower right quadrant and reduced all of them erased all of them from existence except the lower right quadrant and then because it is a holistic quadrant all of these material particles are still drawn together in an interwoven wholeness the wholeness of the exterior materials then they claim, and Deepak Chopra does this all the time, that modern physics shows the underlying unity of the entire universe. And it's a mystical experience.
So if you just get the holistic nature of all the modern materialistic, naturalistic sciences, then you've got the entire universe in a mystical union. And that, as I say, is the most reductionistic, most idiotic frame of mind you can find. And the last thing I'll say about it that's really amusing is all of them will say, and we reached this by overcoming that nasty enlightenment framework where it was all just physicalistic, mechanistic, atomistic, whereas that wasn't the crime of the enlightenment. The enlightenment was made of the great system de la nature interwoven with the entire great chain of being. And only as measurement came in and started erasing all of the quadrants that couldn't be measured, and that meant all but the lower right, they claim that their holism is based on getting rid of the Enlightenment paradigm, which is just hilarious, because it's the Enlightenment paradigm that gave rise to this whole interconnected world. And when we did get it reduced, as I said, most of the men, the researchers that were doing it, didn't even realize they were doing it because they thought they still had the whole great chain of being holding it all together. So they didn't really see any problems, any reductionism that was occurring. But all of these physicists nowadays, today claim that it's, oh, once we get over the atomism of the enlightenment, then we can come into this nice holistic, true wholeness of reality. And that's the same as the mystics, and that's going to save us all. And I find it hysterically idiotic. It's funny, like matricide, since <laughs> these physicists essentially killed their mother, which was the Enlightenment, how much suffering has been created by this culture, which seeks understanding, which only comes from within, from scientific materialists who traffic in inanimate matter divested of meaning. As one example you made reference to, I have to ask, why does Deepak Chopra keep doing this? He reveres you, your work. Why is he unable or unwilling to include both extension and intention as you relate it? Once you look in to the lower right quadrant and you see how carefully it was mistakenly drawn out to give a world where just scientific materialism is true, it's, first of all, it's hard to track all of that. I've sort of give, you know, done my best to give a short version of it, but people, once they get latched onto that, and especially once they get that what the Enlightenment was, was atomistic, physicalistic, mechanistic, and then they go, ah, that's the problem. And let me just add, there is the upper right quadrant, and it contains matter, but just individual, whole on. So it contains atoms, 
molecules, cells, organisms, individual animals, and so on. Those are all there. And if you instead look at the reality of the wholes of all of those, then in the right quadrant where you're working with whole systems, you get things like ecology, Gaia, planets, systems, artifacts, including foraging, horticultural, industrial, agrarian, uh, and so on. One of the things that started happening towards the end of the Enlightenment, as it, it started to realize that it was collapsing into scientific materialism, is a lot of them moved up to the upper right quadrant. And that is an atomistic quadrant. Now, those atoms are, of course, included in the lower right quadrant. It's just that the lower right quadrant looks at the holistic nature of all of those individual atoms. As much as in the upper left, you have an individual person. And in the lower left, you have collective people or cultures. The same in the upper right, you have individual material entities. And in the lower right, you have collective structures of all of those individuals. In systems theory, there's always been a battle in science between whether systems, holistic systems are real or just their individual atomic parts are real. That's been a battle in science for a long time. And most hardcore scientists believe just the atomistic view of science is true. But most of the avant-garde, clever systems theorists believe that no, holes are true. So when a systems theory looks at a wheel, it sees a whole wheel. When an atomist looks at a wheel, it sees just individual spokes and parts all broken down into individual atomic parts. And for them, those broken individual parts are what's real. So what happened is that one of the reasons that this battle between holism and atomism came into being was when the holists, they'd already, everybody had already gotten rid of the left-hand quadrants. So there was no depth or value or psychological wholeness or any of that. There was just, just the right hand, and they got in battles between, okay, which one is real, just atoms or whole systems? And the environment started out, its discovery was, again, the whole system. That's what it made it so system to la nature. That's why it was such an extraordinary discovery and in the great chain of all being. So the holists felt that the cause of the problems was the atomists. And if we could just get the atomists to give up their reductionistic fragmentation belief in atoms and come on board with belief in holes, 
then that would save us. So the people like Deepak fixated on this battle between is there holism or is there atomism? And of course, they said, well, holism. But the holism wasn't really holistic. It was only the holism of the surfaces and matter and all of that. So they latched on to that and started to say that the, our real enemies are the atomists. And that's what Friedrich Capra and them, they latched on to that battle, which left out at half of the universe, left out the entire left half, all of the interiors, all of the selves, all of the subject, all of the purpose and values and meanings. These were all trashed. That's why systems theory today, which is the result of a pure lower right scientific approach, it doesn't deal with any of those left-hand factors. It doesn't deal with value, needs, purpose, goal, the good, the beautiful. It has no idea what to say about any of them. And so it doesn't say anything. And that's what Fritjof and Deepak have hooked on to. And so they're in the battle between holism of a fractured materialistic type versus the atomism that doesn't agree with them. And they think that's the only major battle. So what they do to battle the upper right atomism is they present lower right holism. And they think because they've got that holism, that's it. They've got it all. Whereas they can't even produce a Satori, let alone a single human value in existence. And that's why they hold on to it. It's really odd. I would have to sit down and walk through the entire course of how this all happened to get them, if I can engage the rational part of them while I do this, I might be able to get them to come on board. But on the other hand, if you've written 30 books like Deepak has, and they all say the same thing, he would have to give up an awful lot of territory to acknowledge this. But I've always wondered how he could read my books and write such glowing recommendations for them. I mean, the marriage of sense and soul, he wrote on the cover, this is one of the most important books ever written. Read it, it will change your life. And I just look at it and I go, well, yeah, but you didn't read it. Why are you telling? everybody else to read it. It does seem like a hurdle in getting a Deepak Chopra or a Fritjof Capra or a Neil deGrasse Tyson to move from their worldview because they're minted and ensconced in a deeply established career with a lot to lose. They'd rather pass that problem baton onto the next generation than take that kind of hit and taint their perceived legacy. That's the truth. So we'll just see where this gets us. Maybe this is just a projection, but it seemed in the 90s 
those of us in the integral movement, the human potential movement, etc., felt humanity to be on the precipice of a great emergent. Be that a burgeoning second-tier population or a critical mass which would soon be reached in terms of depth, etc., that didn't happen. And in the last few years, it seems that there has been a cratering or a developmental implosion. Is this an ephemeral hiccup or more of a substantive regression or a serious setback? How optimistic or pessimistic are you about the next few centuries and why? I think, unfortunately, it really is a setback. And I think it's getting quite worse in certain ways. And the reason is that if we look at the major stages of development that people go through, um, we start out after we go through the pre or the egoic stages of development and then start moving into those conformist conformity stages. That first conformity stage is generally called amber. It's also called ethnocentric because a person can actually start to expand their identity from just themselves, which they did at the egocentric stages, to an entire group of people, and occasionally groups. But it still has a boundary. And so this group of people means you can extend love and care to all of them, whereas in the previous stages, you were stuck pretty much loving yourself, so-called narcissistic stages. But then when you get into ethnocentric stages, you become group-oriented. That's ethnocentric. So your identity expands to group-centered. And as I said earlier, this is where the battles that you have switch between yourself and your interior drives of aggression, sex, power, and so on, and start expanding into how you get along in your role in this new identity. And so you become um, a real role self and um, this can be a very good place to um, operate from. The bad part of it is it still thinks in terms of us versus them. And so it can tend to be ethnocentric in the negative ways we mean that term, which is bigoted or prejudiced, because the us that you is your group, that's the in-group, that's the good group, that's the group chosen by God, that's the group that has all of the virtues and, and follows the Bible or follows the Quran or whatever it does. And then there's the them, which don't do that, and they're looked upon as infidels, heretics, blasphemers, any number of negative things. 
And so we generally, there's a warfare generated when people move to that stage. That stage, which goes back to the middle of the first century BC and existed all the way up till about 1500 with the beginning of the Renaissance and the Western Enlightenment. Because it was ethnocentric, us versus them, it didn't have any problems with slavery. And so even most, and, and most of the great religions arose at this mythic stage. And even the great religions, great civilizations that had religion and that had even forms of waking up, they had no problems with slavery at all. St. Paul recommends to slaves to, quote, obey your master and love Jesus Christ. Thomas Sowell, in his history of slavery, said Buddhist monasteries had slaves, Christian monasteries had slaves, pretty much all religions worldwide either had slavery or had no objection to it. And that was because they were at this us versus them mentality, where the us doesn't have slaves, but the them can be slaves because they're rotten, they're apostates, they're no good. So they can be taken as slaves. That continued all the way up into the 1500s, where beyond mythic, is the rational stage of development. And that was what the Western Enlightenment hit. That's why it was called the Age of Reason. It had not an ethnocentric identity, but a world-centric identity. And that meant it believed that all human beings should be treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. That was an entirely new moral stance that had never come into being before. And so in a 100-year period, right in the middle of the Western Enlightenment, from about 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed in every world-centric, rational country on the face of the planet. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And it was because it had a world-centric morality that all people were to be treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. This was not true in the previous ethnocentric mythic stage. There, your special group got special rights. So if you were Christian and you died and you had done everything well during life, then you could go to heaven and live with God and Jesus. If you're Hindu, you're going to hell. That's just it. There's no such thing as universal rights for everybody. But when we hit world-centric rational with a universal understanding of things, then slavery became deeply offensive to people who were at that stage of development. And they developed a fairly 
large and aggressive abolition movement, which within about 100 years had indeed removed slavery from all portions. The political situation was such that the group that came before this modern rational group generally believed in what we call traditional values. So they believed in God. It was a mythic God, but they believed in him. They believed that the Bible was the word of God and was absolutely correct and could not be changed. They valued family, country. In other words, what we would call traditional values, values that the political group that was attached to them wanted to conserve. So they had, those were the conservatives. This new crop, we'll call them progressive people, they were such a radically new version of politics, they had to come up with a different name for what their political party was. So the name they chose was liberal, from the French liberté, meaning freedom, which was the main value of the orange world-centric rational stage of development. It so happens that in the French parliament, all the old conservatives sat on the right-hand side of the king, and all these newfangled leftist, um, progressive, liberal um, people sat on the left side of the king. And this term stuck, left for progressive, liberal, advancing, and right hand for traditional, wanting to hold on, didn't want to change. And for several hundred years, the left and the right managed to get along together with skirmishes and fights here and there. And then in 1963, a third group emerged. And this was another level of development. And it was the green, postmodern, pluralistic stage of development. And in 1959, the percentage of the population in the United States that was at green was 3%. By 1972, the percent of the population that was at green was pushing 15%. And the most frequently quoted academic writer in America was Jacques Derrida. I mean, this really was the postmodern stretch that moved beyond the modern, and the modern was sitting on the traditional. So where two's company, three's a crowd, as soon as we added the postmodern, we got in culture wars. And the culture wars was battled between three different value systems. One was the traditional, and traditional also meant old-time religion. The next were the modern liberals, and they were just that, modern, liberal, rational. They believed in rational approaches to reality, so they were the first to bring all of the new rational modern sciences into being. So they invented modern physics, modern chemistry, modern biology, modern geology, modern astronomy, 
and so on. Then the postmodern pluralists, the green, they were world-centric also in that they believed everybody should be treated fairly. So both orange, modern, world-centric, and green, postmodern, world-centric, agreed with the phrase, all people should be treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. The problem is what they meant by fairly disagreed entirely. So when an original, liberal, orange, world-centric, rational person said fairly, they meant equal opportunity. In other words, if you're going to have an Olympic race and you're seeing who's allowed to run in it, everybody who's qualified to run in the race should be allowed to run in the race. That's equal opportunity. In other words, nobody is excluded because of their race, color, sex, or creed. Then you pull the gun, run the race, person that comes in first gets a gold medal, person in second gets a silver medal, third person gets a bronze medal. That's what orange meant, orange modern meant by fairly. But green postmodern believed in equal outcome, not equal opportunity. So in other words, it didn't want everybody to start the race of life equally at the same time. They wanted everybody to finish the race at the same time. And if there wasn't an equal outcome between all the groups in the race, the ones that finished behind were the product solely of oppression and victimization. And that's the only thing that could cause different groups of people to finish the race at the same time. It wasn't meritocracy. that They didn't buy meritocracy at all. So the green postmodernists switched their values from the original orange liberals. Those orange liberals wanted freedom, whereas the green postmodernists wanted equality. And if you look at it, freedom and equality are actually two very different things. Thorstein Veblen was the first to point out that, quote, because human beings are born with differences, you can have either freedom or equality, but you can't have both. And that's exactly right. So, for example, if you're looking at Harvard and the lawsuit that was recently brought by Asians against Harvard for discriminating against Asians by pumping up the scores of Blacks, what Harvard wanted was more equality in admissions. So to get that equal equality, and since Asians were just shellacking Blacks and pretty much everybody else on the SAT scores, what Harvard did was add several hundred points to each Black person's SAT score. And then with that readjusted score, they, adjust, they compared that to the unadjusted original score that Asians had. 
And so by restricting the freedom of Asians, they could increase the equality in blacks. And so one of the real power differences today in the culture wars is between orange with its background value of freedom versus green with its freedom of equality. And so green will look at any situation. And if any race is ahead of another race, then it's an oppressor. And the race that doesn't finish in time, it's a victim. And that's basically how they'll tend to operate. And so they don't tend to agree in their general values. Orange, for example, believing in freedom, very much believes in free speech. But green, wanting equal outcome, doesn't so much like free speech. And it'll say, for example, that hate speech is not free speech. In other words, hate speech is not protected by free speech. Even though the Supreme Court looked exactly at that situation and said, yes, hate speech is protected by free speech. As a matter of fact, free speech is exactly what protects hate speech. But that doesn't matter. On college campuses where most of the students are expressing green postmodern views, if somebody disagrees with them, they'll shout them down. They won't even let them express their viewpoints because they believe in equal outcome and they don't want to hear this person expressing a meritocracy or explaining why that's not really, you're not giving people freedom if you don't allow them to have free speech. So we've got this extraordinarily difficult culture wars with orange and green really going at each other. And part of the problem is that that green, one of its values is that it's a multiplistic, multicultural flatland stage. And so when green first came into existence, it didn't believe in hierarchies of any sort. It doesn't distinguish between dominator hierarchies, which are all the bad things that they say they are, and growth hierarchy or self-actualization hierarchies. Most of the hierarchies in nature are growth hierarchies. Atoms to molecules to cells to organisms is a growth hierarchy. It's not an oppression hierarchy. Molecules don't oppress atoms. If anything, they love them. They embrace them in their own structure. But for green, any hierarchy is the expression of a patriarchy driven by power and tyranny. And so the first thing that Green, when you'd hear them making recommendations when it first started in the 80s, their main recommendation was flatten all hierarchy. So what Green didn't understand is that its own values were the product of five or six stages of hierarchical growth. People aren't born with green values. They have to go through these stages 
to develop up to green values because the green stage is the highest stage in first tier that means it's the leading edge of culture right now and yet it's got this flat land belief flatten all hierarchies the west is nothing but a corrupt patriarchal hierarchical tyranny and that has put an extraordinary squish on the upward movement of evolution in general and so it's not a temporary glitch it's a serious blockage to how evolutionary growth and growing up can occur it's not going to get any better until second tier integral stages start to become the new leading edge of evolution and that generally happens when the new edge reaches about 10% of the population then you get a tipping point and the entire culture will somehow at least get sort of accepting of the leading edges values so this is what happened in the western enlightenment when 10% of the population hit orange rational universal stages of development that 10% caused a tip in the culture which was among other things enough to make the culture a large part of the culture start to reject slavery it opened a large part of the culture to the new scientific um rational sciences that were emerging it drove the american revolution and certainly the writing of the constitution and the declaration of independence those were all written by highly developed world centric rational people and so that's what happened when we hit 10% of that of reason it actually became known as the age of reason and the modern era and then we saw the same thing happen when green went from 3% in 1959 to 15% by 1972 on the way by the way green today is about 25% of the population and it's sitting on the top of first tier with its flattened all hierarchies critical race theory the belief that america is systemically racist and that we should start america in 1619 not 1773 and those are all extremely unfortunate belief systems and extremely unfortunate structures lying at the very head of our own evolutionary growth and the only thing that's going to change that flat green tip of first tier hierarchy the only thing out there that's going to stop the polarization that that's causing is when second tier hits 10% and there's a tipping point that will then diffuse 
the leading edge of culture now, which is this fragmented, flatland, green postmodernism. And it will start to loosen that up. And that will let the very best and brightest people jump to the second tier stage. And then from there, they'll start reintroducing things that aren't green anymore. So they'll reintroduce healthy hierarchies. They'll introduce growing up stages of development so that we understand them. And they'll start to introduce basically the left-hand quadrants. Remember, those are the ones that got cut out with the downside of the Western Enlightenment. And we still have scientific materialism. So all of that should begin its stopping of all of these green, really horrid, yucky positions that it's taken and that it's doing. So on the long haul, I look quite optimistic for humanity's growth and development, simply because we've seen this in inexorable growth of stage after stage, each one being more inclusive in some ways, even though they all have their downsides. Green is more inclusive in some ways, but then it has all the downsides that I was talking about. But by the time we get second tier as the real leading edge of culture, that's when I think things will start to turn around and we'll see a, a healthy growth continue. Right now, the average percent of population at second tier is about 8%. So we only need two more percent to get to 10%. And then I hope things will indeed start turning around. For more information on Ken Wilbur, check the show notes. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron or a pluser. You get more than double the content, loads of original stuff, entirely exclusive episodes, including fully nude audio. And all patrons and plusers automatically get licensed as realtors. I mean... Maybe you should be a realtor. Recently divorced? You should be a realtor. Empty nest syndrome? You should be a realtor. Midlife crisis? You should be a realtor. Your mom? She's a realtor. Never finished college? Welcome, realtor. Can't find direction or purpose? You should be a realtor. Plagued by the persistent awareness of your own mortality? Just be a realtor. Didn't you used to be in a band? You should be a realtor. Can't cover the bills teaching yoga? Realtor! Didn't you buy a house once? You're practically a realtor. Do you love helping others if you have to? That's a realtor. Are you a dry drunk? You should be a realtor. Do you crave the flexible schedule of a compulsive gambler? Realtor much? Have you ever known a realtor? Let me finish. Or just met a realtor? Maybe you should be a realtor. Do you surf Zillow? Follow cheap European homes on Instagram? Did you play Monopoly as a kid? Ever been convicted of a felony? Realtor! 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 And for Minus listeners, you should be an interior decorator. That's true. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, 
work on abduction, contact with non-human entities, creativity as a spiritual path, and much more. Go to theliminalmuse.com or click the link in the show notes. Also, check out the Experiencer Group, a private membership site for experiencers of anomalous phenomena, building a positive anomalous culture. When we come, your skin is mine. As if we die and combine, and then we spill our souls in sacred falls. Everybody wants to taste a little something carbon based. Sex is proof the Holy Ghost crawls around in stuff that's gross. What's that?